Good morning, everyone. My name is Charlie Rowland, and I'll be leading our time this morning through Psalm 2, which we're going to read in a moment. Thank you, Brandon and worship team, for setting us up so well for what we're going to look at today. But before we jump into Psalm 2 this morning, I would like to set the stage for what we are going to be studying today. You don't need to turn there, but in Luke 7, in Jesus' time, there were many people of authority. There were lots of people of rulers, and they rejected Jesus' claims of authority. They rebelled against what he said. They did not submit to his claims of deity. However, there's a story in Luke 7 where a man of high-ranking authority met Jesus. It's um, referred to as the Roman centurion. So what centurion means is that he was part of the Roman military system. He likely had about a hundred soldiers underneath of him, under his authority. And this centurion sadly had a dear friend, a bondservant, who fell sick and was at the point of death. And so he asked and sought out Jesus to come and heal his servant. Jesus decides he will go and see the servant to heal him. And while Jesus is on the way to heal the servant, the text says, the centurion sent friends saying to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. It's kind of shocking because this guy is pretty worthy. In like standard time, he would be considered one who was of pretty high-ranking authority. The text also says that he helped build the synagogue. But he says, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. He goes on to say, that's why I did not presume to come to you, but simply say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority. So he would take his orders from his commander, who probably takes his orders from Caesar. And he goes on to say, with soldiers underneath me. He could say to a soldier, go, and that soldier would go. He would say to someone else, do this, and they would do that. Or he would say to someone else, come, and they would come. He understood how authority worked. He understood that Jesus took orders from God the Father, and that all of heaven and earth was under the authority of Jesus. And how does Jesus respond Jesus responds with marvel, with amazement. And Jesus says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. That centurion understands who Jesus is, the authority that Jesus Christ has. Just as that person humbly acknowledged the authority vested in Jesus and his actions corresponded with that, My hope this morning is that we realize, we acknowledge, and we submit to the authority vested in Jesus that we'll find in Psalm 2. Here's my outline for this morning. This is what I hope and pray that we're able to see from the text. We realize we rebel from God's authority, that we acknowledge the authority God the Father has instituted. We submit to the Son, Jesus, and by so doing, we bring glory to God and find joy. Angela, would you mind coming up and reading Psalm 2 for us? 
Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is God's word. Thank you, Angela. Psalm 2 is at the beginning of the Psalms. Psalms 1 and 2, they serve as a gateway to the rest of the 150 psalms, helping us understand the rest. They lay a strong foundation of what is to come. We know that David is the author of this psalm, primarily from all the New Testament quotations they say David said. And like Brandon said earlier, this psalm is considered a royal psalm, meaning that it's referring to the king of Israel. So it's typically categorized in that way. In the first three verses, let us look what we find. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So this psalm starts off by asking a rhetorical question, highlighting the vanity of scheming against God. The restlessness and the, of raging and plotting against God. Verse 2 kind of shows us who it is that is plotting and, uh, and scheming against God. It's, it's all of those in high authority. It's the kings, the governors, the rulers. Everyone who has high-ranking authority plots against the Lord and against his anointed. Uh, it's interesting, the word in verse 2, take counsel, it's actually the same word in Psalm 1 that is used to say they meditate on God's word day and night. So instead of meditating and taking counsel from God's word, they meditate and take counsel on how can we revolt against God. Verse 3, it's this idea of let us free ourselves from the oppressive regime of God. The NLT says, let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves 
from the slavery to God. It's like this idea of, you know, you have a little child and you're kind of guiding them where to go by putting your hands on their shoulders and say, okay, go this way, go this way. And it's this idea of like, get your hands off of me. I'll go where I want to go. Or the, the dog on the leash saying, get me off of this leash. I want to go where I want. So these verses we see, they're highlighting the full range of leadership seeking to free themselves from God's authority by rebelling from his laws, his will, and his decree. This is true then, and this is still true today. I'm sure we all feel and see this all around us. We can look in a newspaper and look at the ways that there are leaders who just reject the rule of God, whether it be in school districts, whether it be in government, whether it be in business, they want nothing to do with God. I just was thinking on this earlier. I think one of the most poignant ways that we see that in our day is in regard to what God says about sexuality and what the world says about sexuality. And not just like LGBTQ stuff. Like I'm talking how premarital sex and, and the rest, the, the world says, we don't care what God says, we're going to do what we want. And so this is seen often in leaders and in families and in government saying, let us free ourselves from God's oppressive reign. It's not hard for us to see this. They don't care about God. I want us to see this morning that yes, it is out there. It's out in the world. We are all aware of that. But I also want us to see this morning that it is in here. It is in each of our hearts. In every single one of us. That same sin of rebellion that courses through their veins to say, get off of me, God, I don't want your authority, is also in all of us. Let me explain what I mean by this. Often when we uh, think or speak of sin, you may hear different definitions. So for example, uh, when you're trying to get at the core of what sin is, you may hear sin is lawlessness, like First John would say. Or you may hear sin is selfishness, or sin is pride, or sin is a lack of faith in the promises of God, or sin is unbelief, or sin is missing the mark, or sin is falling short of God's glory, or like I'm explaining here, sin is rebellion. And I often sometimes I'm like, okay, well, which one is it? The number one Sunday school answer is Jesus. The number two Sunday school answer is all of the above. This was very helpful for me when I came to this realization that these are all different aspects of what sin is. Is sin not trusting? Yes, it is. Is it being selfish? Yes, it is. Is it also rebelling? Yes, it is. It is right for us to view our sins and faults not only as unbelief, not only as pride, not only as selfish, but also as rebellion, as an act of treason against God himself. And so a question for us before we move along is this. Do you see your sin as rebellion against God? 
we are part of verses 1, 2, and 3 also. It's the get your hands off of me type of mentality when we fall into sin. It's not the, uh, oh, I'll get to it and sweeping under the rug. It is rebellion against God. Our battle with sin is more successful when we begin by realizing we rebel as well against God's authority. We are responsible. And we will see at the end of this psalm, there is hope for those who rebel. The next portion here we're going to look at is verses 4 through 9. And these verses highlight and show us the Lord and his anointed's response to the rebellion. Specifically, authority that God the Father has instituted. The authority that God the Father, this is his response. Here's the authority that God the Father has instituted. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. This is God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. The text says he who is sitting in the heavens, he is far away from those who are rebelling. The little ants are rebelling against him and he is completely unfazed by it. Sitting enthroned in heaven. Um, It also says he laughs. This is not the laughter of comedy or hilarity. You know the saying, um, oh, we aren't laughing at you. We're laughing with you. This is not that. It's the opposite. He's laughing at them. Uh, This is ridicule. This is mockery. It's not the, uh, oh, good joke. Let's all laugh about it and be happy with one another. It says the Lord holds them in derision. Synonyms of that word are mocking, ridicule, scoff, taunt, disdain. And then he speaks in verse 5, and it underlines his posture toward them, which is fuming anger and fury. Let's pause a minute here. Admittedly, this was hard for me to think of God this way. I really had to look at a lot of different commentaries and listen to sermons to think through, wow, this is God's response? I was confused, shocked, and moved. But I felt, but through thinking through it, I felt like it probably showed my lack of knowledge and how much anger and fury sin brings to God. Our understanding of sin probably is often undeveloped, underdeveloped. We often see sin as an inconvenience, just as a mess up. Here's God's response. It brings him to fury. He's one sitting on a throne, and he stands up. He's stirred up in anger. But how right is it? Yes, how right is it that God gets angry. Imagine leaving instructions. You know, you know how to build a house. Me and my housing illustrations. You know how to build a house and you leave the instructions with someone and say, this is exactly how the house should be built and that person's going to go and tell the others how to build the house. And you leave and then you come back and first off, that person's not in charge anymore. They've revolted from that person and they're building a completely different house that's not built correctly. And you show up and you start inspecting the house and you're like, oh, this is going to leak in a few days. This window's going to rot. This is not going to work out. Like, oh, this is, this is not working well. It would be wrong for you to give it the stamp of approval. 
How much more does it bring God to fury and wrath when his creation sins and rebels against his good design, against his good authority? He is the creator, he's the designer, and he knows what is best for his creation. He designed the world and knows what's best. So we see that a response of anger and fury is actually integral to his goodness. It's not loving to give the stamp of approval on something that is going to fail, that isn't going to work out. It is part of his good character that he is brought to anger when people would rebel against a good and righteous God. Let us keep moving on here. We see in verses 4 and 5 God's angry response to the rebellion. And then verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, you see God respond and remind everyone, here is who I actually placed in charge. So verse 6 tells us God has left a leader and a ruler. um, And it tells us that he has chosen a king in Zion. Mount Zion is frequently used uh, synonymously with Jerusalem, God's holy hill. So he's reminding them, hey, I left a king in Jerusalem. Verses 7, 8, and 9, they actually switch who is speaking. It's not God the Father, but it's actually the king now speaking in verses 7, 8, and 9. So again, let's, let's take a moment here and remind ourselves where we are. We are in the book of Psalms. We are pre-Jesus. This is in the Old Testament. It is important to note that this psalm is not only a royal psalm, meaning it's referring to the king of Israel, but it's also what's known as a messianic psalm, meaning that it is pointing ahead to something and someone that's going to ultimately fulfill this. But In the original context of verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, this is actually referring to the king of Israel. So kings of Israel would be called sons. So look in verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is actually not strange language for God to use toward a king of Israel. Brendan mentioned earlier 2 Samuel 7, 16. Two verses before that, 2 Samuel 7, 14 when God is speaking to David and he's talking about his son Solomon, he says, God says, I will be to Solomon a father and Solomon will be to me a son. So God applies this idea of sonship to the kings of Israel. And then there's, uh, but what you'll actually know and if you're familiar with the Bible is that that's how it was meant to be, sonship, you know, reflecting of the father. But what you often know, if you've read through Kings, First and Second Kings, or First and Second Chronicles, is that they fell short of the standard God set. So this psalm is partially fulfilled in the kings of Israel. And I say it's partially fulfilled because those kings failed. Often, if you read through those books, it, a, a word or a phrase you'll come across often will be, And the king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. So you often see the kings falling short of the standard that God the Father set. Instead, the second set of eyes, and the fullest meaning here of these verses and of this psalm, can be seen 
in realizing that God's actual son, Jesus Christ, comes and fulfills this psalm. This psalm is messianic in that it points to a full reality that isn't fulfilled in the kings of Israel, but actually fulfilled in Jesus. Verses 7, 8, and 9 do not find their fulfillment and true meaning in the king of Israel, but in Jesus. When the New Testament quotes this psalm, they don't say the kings of Israel every time. Hebrews 1, Acts 4, Acts 13, Revelation 2, every time they apply it to Jesus Christ, King Jesus. Look with me again at verse 6, through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jesus sits on a throne in the true Zion, in the heavens above, right now, reigning. Verse 7, Jesus is the actual son of God the Father. The Nicene Creed says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, same essence with the Father. There's true sonship there. Verse 8, Jesus Jesus has children in every nation and tribe. He has a reign over every nation and tribe. Verse 9, Jesus has authority, has a rod and an iron of scepter that will be actualized one day. Uh, the, the text says it's a rod of iron. The translation is an, is an iron scepter, like a king would hold a scepter. That's like what the translation is. And clay pots, here's a visual for you. Think with me about a baseball bat and a fine piece of china. That is like the imagery that is being displayed here. A baseball bat and a fine piece of china. Like, destruction. Two could not be more opposite things. So we see that verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 find their fulfillment, their true meaning, not in the kings of the Old Testament, but in King Jesus' rule and authority. As I was thinking through, okay, how do we take that truth there How do we take that truth? That this psalm is fully realized in Christ, fully realized in Jesus. Jesus really does sit on a throne, really does have power. How do we we move that to our hearts? How do we move that to our hearts? All I could think of is that we acknowledge that and we are aware of that authority that is in Jesus Christ. We acknowledge, we admit, and we recognize the authority that has been vested in Jesus. Jesus. We, we often acknowledge and admit to the authority of traffic cops. You know, we don't speed because it's like, oh, well, if I speed, I'm going to get pulled over. We should also recognize the authority. In Matthew 28, it says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And a quick application to that is this. One really easy way to acknowledge that is through crying out to him in prayer. When you find yourself being prideful and wanting to do it on your own, cry out instead to King Jesus, who has ultimate control over all things. So we see, we see the authority that God the Father has instituted. We're going to see a couple more things in this passage. We've seen rebellion from God's authority. You see God reinstating who's here, here's who's actually in authority. And finally, or one of the final things we're going to see is what should be our response to that authority. Submit to the Son, Jesus. 
Submit to the Son, Jesus. Verse 10 tells us, be wise, be warned. Those of you who are rulers, those of you who are in positions of authority, recognize the lordship of Jesus. Choose the wise path. Take your orders from him. Your, your authority is below that of Jesus's. In verses 11 and 12, we're going to find words like, you're going to find, serve the Lord with fear. And then you have rejoice with trembling. We also see further down that there is a, a wrath that can be quickly kindled, but refuge can be found in Jesus. It's important for us to remember that an all-encompassing judgment, an all-encompassing wrath, is coming. And only those who are found hiding in the shadow of the cross will be saved. It is only those who have trusted in Jesus, found, found refuge in Jesus, who will be saved from Jesus. The same anger that was spoken of in verses 4 and 5 is coming. In regard to serve the Lord with fear, you may have heard that generally speaking, when we speak of the fear of the Lord, that this is referring to a reverent fear, a fear of respect that you should have for his power, which is absolutely true for the one who has taken refuge in Jesus. But remember earlier how I talked about the baseball bat and the china? That will be actualized one day. That will actually come about one day. Revelation 6, verses 15 and 16, I'm going to read for us, reminds us of the day that is coming when Jesus returns and exercises that iron scepter. It says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, all of those who have not taken refuge in Jesus, the text says, they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they called to the mountains and the rocks and said, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, Jesus, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? There is a day of judgment coming where there will not be reverential fear of God. No, that day will be unadulterated horror before what is coming. That day will be a shaking from head to toe over what awaits. It will be sheer panic in every bone of one's body, knowing that you stand before a righteous judge and you've messed up and there's no provision and no hope, no do-over. There is no reverent fear there. There is only sheer horror and fear before a holy God. And that is not a ploy to coerce you. That is simply a fact. That that day is coming. But if you are listening right now, there is the opportunity to not have to be at that point of enslaving fear, like when your torturer walks into the room. The reason is, it's because a fatherly respect and a fatherly 
a parental respect, a parental honor is available to us. The difference is not in the person. The difference is in how one stands in relation to the person. Are you his enemy? Are you his child? That day is coming where we can take, or we now can take refuge in Jesus and experience a new relationship with God. The respect and honor and the, the fear is, is, is mixed together with love. I can't think of anything other than like two streams of water just coming together. It's a stream of love and cherishing and respect and, or sorry, love and appreciation mixed with a stream of respect and honor. That is what the Christian experiences. He, ex- he or she experiences both of those things together. It's, it's a love and appreciation. It's a fatherly connection to him while also still experiencing a reverence for him. And the sweetest part is this. As rebels, as people who have sinned, we can partake in the refuge from judgment through Jesus, through him bearing the wrath shared in verses four and five in our place from the Father. Jesus says in John 10, I am the door, he's the gateway. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And so a sonship fear, a fear of God that is respectful and honor is available to us now that we can have if we take refuge in Jesus now. Verse 12, continuing on, talks about kissing the son. This is referring to uh, a king coming and conquering another kingdom, and then that conquered king would go and kiss the feet of the conqueror. It's a, it's a respect and it's a submission to the one who is conquered. When I thought through this and I thought of how, to, how do we apply these verses I thought through, this is the action part. We are supposed to be submitting to the rule and reign of Jesus. And I thought of this. There's probably two groups of people when we think of submitting to Jesus. The first group of people is this. Some of us may not know what does it mean to submit to Jesus with where I am in life right now. So I don't know if it's like, I don't know if you're a young mother or a a young parent, or you're in college, or taking care of an elderly person. It's like, I don't know what it means for me to submit to Jesus in my particular life circumstance. That's honestly where I found myself. I was, uh, I'm like, I found myself training through school to be in seminary and to learn this, but I actually found myself in the corporate workforce for now quite some years. And I remember thinking like, I don't know what it means to like honor Jesus when I'm working 40 hours a week in this corporate workforce. So there's this first group of people. And if you find yourself like, yeah, I don't know what it means to honor Jesus with where I am right now in life. My encouragement to you is ask someone else. It's actually something I regret There's lots of like godly older women and men who have worked in the workforce for 50 years in a big corporation are like, let me tell you what it means to honor Jesus day by day, 40 hours a week while you're there. Reach out to other brothers and sisters who are going through that and they can show you, here's what it means to submit to Jesus. The second group of people I thought of is the ones who are like, no, I know what it means to submit to Jesus. I just don't have the power to do so. Again, the common denominator, reach out to someone. Have someone else pray for you. 
And remind yourself the Holy Spirit is with you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be be tempted beyond your ability, but with that temptation, he'll provide you the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So those are just two ways that I thought of. How do you apply this reality that we actually need to walk out and submit to the lordship of Jesus? If you're in one of those two groups, I hope you're able to speak to someone else about that. Let's, uh, Let's look here at the final phrase in verse 12 as we come to an end of our time together. We would bring glory to God and find joy. If we're able to do these things, we bring glory to God and we find joy. This is the result of doing the above actions. By realizing that we are rebels, by acknowledging Jesus' authority, and then by submitting to his rule, we bring glory to God, which is the most important part of our lives. That's like what we are alive to do. And a sweet bifactor of bringing glory to God is we also find joy. And as a beautiful reminder, we don't submit to a dictator. We don't follow orders from someone who is imperfect, sinful, or faulty. Someone who doesn't know what they are doing or someone who's going to make a mistake. Jesus is perfect. He's fully God. He knows all things. This this reality sat, I heard it years ago, and it sat in my heart. Jesus loves me more than I love myself. I need to submit to him. He loves his children more than they love themselves. So you are submitting to someone who loves you and cherishes you more than you, it knows what is better for you more than you even know what's good for your own soul. So this psalm, it does have a healthy dose of wrath and of judgment but it also has a good dose of hope and comfort. And if you take nothing else, I want you to know this is flourishing. This is true life. This is true humanness. True meaning in this life is found when we honor and obey Jesus. Earlier, I mentioned the centurion who who went to Jesus and asked, hey, please come and heal my servant. Luke 7.10 says that his servant was healed at that moment. It worked out well for that person who was in a position of authority and and acknowledged Jesus' authority. Blessed, happy are all of those who take refuge in Jesus. You will not regret it. I promise you that. Let us close together with a word of prayer. Father, I'm very thankful that you have provided a way for rebels like all of us in this room to have a restored relationship with you. Father, we're very thankful right now as many of us pray and speak to you that we speak directly to you. We're thankful that you have opened that door. Thank you for instituting the good ruler, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his rule and reign, and I ask that you would help us to see in our own lives where is it, how is it, that we can submit to him with where we are. Thank you for your word and your son, and we ask all of these things through him. Amen.